Sutra 9 The Samadhi of Contemplation, Sampragnata Samadhi, is accompanied by reasoning, reflecting, rejoicing, and pure I amness. I woke up in the middle of the night and smelled something linger very close to me. What is that? I asked the cats. Aha, cat pee, said Mr. Kismet. Was it you? He smiled big and said, Maybe. What the hell? Are you aware of all the suffering I've endured in the present through the past? Now why would you pee on that blanket? Because of impermanence, you must learn that nothing lasts, said Mr. Kismet. Oh, I'm sick of this shit. And so I went to the closet to clean it. But when I got in, just there I found cat shit. Who shit on the floor? I'm not putting up with this anymore. Time to come clean. Now who was it? It had to be one of you two black cats. Or am I asleep in a dream? Why would you do this? I stared at both black cats. Impermanence, because nothing lasts, said forgiveness. Oh, the horrors of life and death. How could this be a real teaching? This felt like a deliberate message of pure chaos that one or both of these cats were intent on unleashing. You know, we've studied with many Zen masters, said Mr. Kismet. I doubt that. No, really, we have, he said. All of them were cats. Impermanence was the lesson this morning, and it was excruciatingly difficult to understand. These cats were mere felines doing whatever they wanted and they did not understand the laws or rules made by the human man. Why would you do that to this blanket? Because it's not your blanket, said Mr. Kismet. It's not? Nope. It belongs to the universe, and the universe doesn't care what you think you know. Did you know that death doesn't give two shits about what you earn, the house you live in, or what your living body owns? said Mr. Kismet. Oh yeah? Then what's it all about? Examine the flowers. Look what they know. What matters most is the fruits that we grow, said forgiveness. And how do you know so much? I am the great renunciate. All I eat is cat kibble and water. Great yogis like me refrain from collecting material things. And to me, the humans get lost in greed and turn into pathetic hoarders, accepting and rejecting. They get in so much trouble within their own minds. But I am that great Zen master, and by practice of deep contemplation, which is called Samadhi, I have attained peace of mind, said Forgiveness. That night we passed by many planets, and in the morning we woke up upon Earth, a beautiful blue and green jewel. She was covered by water, and she was covered by the dirt. Took a long time to make Earth, but she doesn't belong to anything or anyone. Cats, dogs, and all sorts of animals piss and shit all over her, but yet people think her ownership belongs solely to man. Well, I'm afraid to admit that those human people ought to get with it. They'll bomb everything and everyone, and so I pissed on the blanket so you don't get sick with the ignorance they transmit. The teaching is to use discomfort. By working with the things that annoy us most, 
we discover the power to transmute. Can you be indifferent to the outcomes that arise in the mind? And if so, then you will produce the heavenly fruit. Imagine an apple tree. It goes through spring and summer, then fall and winter. The tree endures through the storms and rain, and at just the perfect time, it sprouts out apples where the fruit grows thicker. It takes a process, a certain cycle that is due. This is the same as life and death, the evolution that the soul goes through. Now the piss on the blanket was a reminder to help you realize that you're not here for long. Don't cling and grasp to material things or measure your worth by what you think you own. The blanket may keep you warm, but your soul will keep you alive. The blanket will decompose in time, but the soul will never die. What matters right now is the modifications in the mind, and that's why I'm going to keep pissing on your blanket until you learn to reframe your mind. Whatever you hope for may not be what you get. Learn to let go of the annoyances, and before long, you won't get upset. Every morning we are born, then every night we die. The real purpose of life is to cultivate a connection with the spiritual soul glowing out from the inside. What I mean by this teaching is that there is secret wisdom waiting within all things, even what we call unpleasant or bad. Imagine if we were in the sun and summer year-round. The earth herself would get far too hot, and her soils would eventually turn into a type of dry sand. But through a great balance, the earth produces humans, animals, and all sorts of pure fruit. We're getting grounded back in our soils, and guess why? Asked Forgiveness. Why is that? Because we've got a tribe to recruit, said Mr. Kismet. Unknown to many of these passengers, the purpose of this voyage was not to get the best seat upon the train. It didn't matter how comfortable the journey could be, since life and death did not care about what an individual could gain. Did anyone else know why we'd come back to Earth? The land of great accomplishments, where people devote their lives to jobs, sports, and wealth. Well, the cats and I never had a knack for making money, and so I began to work for them, for the tribe we were trying to recruit. And if this was like a marketing campaign, then we'd need a good slogan. It's a tribe, not an army, because no one likes the idea of us versus them. But why the tribe? Why can't we just relax and live life right? Because there's a war in the world, and if we lose, so do the children of life. Did you know that there are much higher realms than life on Earth as we call it humanity? There's lower levels and higher pure lands. There are powerful beings beyond us that care little for the material progress of man. Of course they may be curious, but Earth is in the very middle. We're a sort of reflection of the higher and lower planes, and that's why we seem to be in this type of pickle. You see there's a war happening in all realms, which extends through the Earth and spirit. No matter what happens, we must devote ourselves to virtue and love. That way, we will get through it," said Forgiveness. Each night, the train of wonder would depart from the stars and descend back down to Earth. We'd get excited and curious. Did anyone else aboard even believe in rebirth? And what new body would I get? 
How would I manage the mind? I sure hope I didn't lose sight of the two black cats, because such perfect wisdom is hard to find. Now to those who were on the train, then of course it meant that in some way we had died. But the real mystery of death was that there was no explanation to the purpose of it all that life or death would provide. Rather the train kept going, and all these souls tried to find their proper place. We all looked for pleasure and comfort, but I could sense that quite a few of us aboard went inward to examine our mental state. I passed by a stoic, and this man was mighty and strong. I could feel a genuine presence when I interrupted his external avatar. He turned and whispered, Everything you need is inside of you. Then I passed by a woman living as a videographer, and her aura seemed to be beaming with a beautiful smile and radiant light. I felt a sense of warmth any time I passed by her, and so I realized that light this bright only shines when you've surpassed a very dark night. She winked and whispered, Did you know that 75 hard days can change your life? Choose a diet and follow it. Complete two 45-minute workouts no matter what the mind has to say. Read 10 pages of nonfiction and drink a gallon of water every day. Take pictures of your progress and just keep going. After 75 hard days, your dreams and goals will already be growing. All these passengers were unique, and after I made my way back through first class, I found my way into the heart of the engine room. This is where I joined Girl, the cat with the flame between her eyes, along with the Yogini, who relaxed with the other cool cats. A bit of an update for everyone. As you know, we've all arrived to die. But there is some good news. The cats and I are building a tribe. You want us to join you in what? Did you say you're starting an army? Oh, I'm sorry. I think you lost me, said Girl. Well, I don't think of it like a war, but more like a duty to help the children of life. Hell, we're going to die anyway. Why not fight for what is right? The Yogini smiled and nodded, and I was curious if maybe she was just bored. Then she went off to teach eight yoga classes that day, and so the whole idea of building a spiritual army was pretty much ignored. I guess I'd have to come up with a real slogan, something that just felt right. Now what would we call it? Why not call it the Children of Life? Asked Mr. Kismet. Sounds good, but like I said, I am totally in opposition to war. Now how will we keep this train going forward? How will we maintain the proper course? Wind horse, said Forgiveness. These cats were brilliant, and I barely had to question anything they said. I guess you just kind of know who to trust once you get on the other side of life, after your body is dead. And I'm still in a bit of shock that we actually got aboard such a fancy train. But the more I try to contribute, the more likely I am to go insane. Well, I've been teaching yoga with all levels, and there's definitely some potential from the students in our practice. It's hard to know how fast all of our healing will happen, but you're welcome to join in on the classes if you start slipping into madness," said the Yogini. And so I began to examine our differences. Even though we were all fellow souls, we held different rays of light within, and so we appeared like different species of creatures that live to offer our talents 
which aligned with a unique set of goals. Some of these passengers wanted to snack and graze. Others wanted to work, serve, and help out. Some wanted to spend time with others, while others preferred to spend time alone and relax upon this train's great route. Every night as we'd visit the stars, I'd start slipping from the jobs I worked at. And so I began praying that no one would fire me. Day and night I would write, building up a plan to how we could get this right. And so I saved it in a secret folder and called it the Children of Life. It was all our secret insight, my best effort to show those bad guys we weren't messing around. And who knows, even if they took a peek inside, worst case, they'd learn special wisdom that they'd never found. I made sure to spend time with all the passengers, to make sure we were all aligned. And this is when I learned that no matter how someone looks or appears, you technically have no clue as to what is happening within their mind. The passengers in first class were not necessarily better or greater. Even if they appeared balanced, peaceful, and virtuous, we were all comprised of the very same nature. I began to ask many questions, and so I learned about the truth within our souls. We were all of the same type, and I tried to help others remember we were many parts of a great spiritual whole. I would ask all sorts of questions, something like, what advice would you give your younger self? Then time would fly by, and before long, I'd ask a similar question to someone else. Before I knew it, a community started to grow. There was a sort of invisible connection happening, and this was certain, yet an unseen flow. Like an invisible thread tying us together, I began to learn that many of these souls had faced great tragedies in their past. By some miracle, we were all pulled here together, and the only way you could realize this was based on the depth of questions a person might ask. Because on the surface, it's easy to judge or criticize, but just like the cat that never died, all of these radiant souls held the universe in their eyes. One woman left her job to change the world and build an empire of conscious beauty. It would have been far easier to seek profit and gain, but she answered the soul's higher duty. When I learned of this great risk that she took, I had to ask her why. She was a person who believed in quantum physics, and so she explained, the ways of dirty beauty must die. Aha! Another fan of the Great Reset. I begged for her to hire me, there I joined her team. I had to see if there were any other spiritual warriors we'd find, and so we'd change the world through the conscious dream. I was so inspired by her spirit, she was very rare, to answer a conscious calling. Meanwhile, the rest of Earth would fill makeup with terrible ingredients, pollute the land, test on animals, but this woman found this unconscious beauty appalling. But what could I do to support her? I must admit that in the realm of beauty, I felt quite dumb, but still I wanted to let her know that I saw her inner fullness, and so I wrote her a poem. Susanna the Powerful, thank you for your wisdom, kindness, and generosity. Have you ever noticed that wherever you walk, you radiate a glowing luminosity? This is no accident, but rather we attract exactly what we are. The work you are doing now is like a compass for this dark world, and so your direction, advice, and energy embodies a conscious north star. 
So many of us are looking toward the light. We're in search of a way back home. You and your conscious beauty brand embody that great sun. And all of us are like little seedlings looking to your light so that our own radiance can grow. Now, if I would have judged her at first glance, I might have misjudged her because she was in first class. There I would have missed the opportunity to learn about her purpose, and so the opportunity to see her soul's purpose would vanish and pass. This chance meeting inspired me, and so I was offered a position on her team. Chief of Staff was the title. Oh goodness, was this all a dream? I had access to all staff, and so I started teaching yoga on Monday mornings. They thought we were selling makeup, but there was a war in the world and a spiritual force was forming. All over this train there were luminous souls, and I took the initiative to get to know them on a much deeper level. So I went to a woman with great joy, because of course I needed to meet her. Although she was joy, I learned her story was tragic. Not long ago, her children nearly drowned, and she lost her husband while saving those kids in the process. Her husband swam out to rescue their kids, who were swept away in the ocean's riptide. She too went to save them, and as she did, her husband died. And when you hear such a story, it's almost too much to bear. But through this, she started a campaign called Float Don't Fight, and so I saw another miraculous example of a brave soul who did not lose sight. Again and again, I met all sorts of brave souls upon this train, and if I hadn't taken the time to get to know them, then all of my work aboard this vessel would have been in vain. Some spoke of their sobriety, others spoke of battling with overcoming suicide, and now I really understood why we had gathered here, because a part of our lives had been killed, was gone, or had died. After another night in the stars, our train touched down upon the earth. There I caught a couple souls who wanted to hop on board. The woman explained she was heading into heart surgery, and when they asked to join the community, I said, of course. Just like that, the train really had a heartbeat. All these women came together, and one by one, the Wonder Women rolled up their sleeves. I saw a spark, and it started from a wounded heart. There it began to grow, and light a great fire that illuminated the vast dark parts. The woman heading into surgery was dying to her lower self. Like so many others aboard the Wonder Train, she conquered the great fear of death to discover her highest self. That night I wrote a message to many powerful women who happened to be aboard the train. I passed it along and spread the word in hopes they were interested in our Children of Life campaign. Oh yes, we can change the world, and it starts with community in mind. By discovering that all these people were perfect to be a part of the spiritual army, it appeared as if it was divinely assigned. The females aboard this train met first thing in the morning, and they became known as the Wonder Women. All it took was a single idea, and from there, the Wonder Women were off and running. The train continued on, and so the entire community began to feel like all of us belonged. But late in the nights I would wonder why so many of our souls hurt on the planet and what on the earth had gone wrong. It is time to sink into contemplation. 
let go and go on. Witness the nature of the true self. Go discover where you're actually from, said Mr. Kismet. These cats were expert meditators, and so they sat much like a loaf of fine bread. But I did not have a feline form like them, and so I sat upright with my hips above my knees where I crossed my legs. With my hands in my lap, I focused my eyes about four to six feet away, and for a moment I witnessed the calamity within my mind and all the needless thoughts that it had to say. But every so often, I touch a space and let go. Oh, it was so pure and wholesome. I knew that awakened stillness was what forgiveness had called the Shiva Shakti flow. The more I sat, the more I found I enjoyed listening to the wind. I would sink deeper into the soul in search of the seer, for there I discovered the seer was living within, and so forgiveness spoke. In the first section of the sutras, the seer explained the theory of yoga. Now we speak of the final practice called samadhi, or contemplation, and all its variations. The mystic is completely scientific in this respect. We see yoga as a rigorous science and never hesitates to give all the aspects of the practice and their ramifications. It is the duty of scientists to understand and explain every aspect of their discoveries. It is just as when chemists formulate medicine. They have to explain its proper usage, as well as any adverse reactions that could occur if not used properly. In case someone might think they are ready to practice samadhi right away, they should know that the practice of samadhi only becomes possible after a person has achieved perfection in concentration and meditation. The mind must acquire one-pointedness and have been brought completely under control, because the entire mind must be used in the practice of samadhi. In these sutras, the seer talks about two kinds of samadhi, distinguished and undistinguished, or a lower samadhi and a higher samadhi. The seer further divides the distinguished, or lower samadhi, into four forms. To understand them, we have to understand the makeup of what the seer calls nature, or prakriti. According to the seer, prakriti also has four divisions, the gross material, the subtle elements which ultimately express as the concrete forms which you see, the mind stuff called chitta, and the ego or individuality. So, samadhi is practiced first on the gross objects, and then on the subtle elements, and then on the mind devoid of any objects except its own joy. In other words, on the sattvic mind, and finally on the I feeling alone. There is a progression because you can't immediately contemplate the very subtle. First you have to train the mind to focus on something concrete. Remember that at this point the mind is already well under control. The moment the purely focused mind contemplates an object, it goes to the very depth of that object and understands every particle of it. A focused mind gains power, and when that powerful mind concentrates on an object, the entire knowledge of that object can be revealed to the mind. Knowing this, we can easily see that scientists who probed the matter and discovered atomic energy were practicing this samadhi when the mind is focused on the gross object. 
They were practical and wanted to know. They focused their entire minds on that, and even that small particle of matter revealed itself. In getting the knowledge, we gain power over the atom. That is one form of what is meant by samadhi, said forgiveness. Beyond just a scientist, this goes for anyone at work, a job, or is involved with planning. You are focusing your attention somewhere or upon something, and from it you get an understanding, said Mr. Kismet. So the benefit of this contemplation is the understanding of the inner secrets and powers of your object of contemplation. But what will you do with this power? The danger can easily be realized by seeing how atomic energy can be used for destructive bombs instead of soothing bombs. There is a danger in getting all the extraordinary powers. If this samadhi is practiced without the proper moral background, the result will be dangerous. But as a scientist, the seer must explain it anyway. In the next form, you contemplate the subtle elements. Here there is no concrete object to see. You contemplate something abstract, like white or red or love or beauty. Because they are abstract, a normal person cannot understand what redness or love is without the help of another concrete object. But if you are able to contemplate and understand the concrete objects well, your mind gets the capacity to understand the abstract things even without concrete objects. Then you rise above time and space also. This is another form of samadhi, which you can think of as with reflection. Further on, we go into the still subtler one in which even the discrimination or reflection is not there. You don't use the intellect here, but you contemplate just the tranquil mind itself. In that, you get a joy, which is called Sa-Ananda Samadhi, or the Blissful Samadhi. There is only joy there, and no reasoning or reflection. In the fourth Samadhi, even that Ananda, or bliss, is not there, but you just get awareness of individuality. You contemplate the I-ness. You are just there, and you are aware of nothing else. It's called Sa-Asmita Samadhi or with egoity. It's possible to visualize what that could be, but still, let us understand theoretically at least. In this samadhi, the samskaras are still in the mind in their seed form. These are the formations or pathways of the mind. Even though you are only aware of the I, the samskaras or mental pathways are still buried within the mind. This distinguished samadhi or lower samadhi, is a process of going inward, no evolution, but involution. Originally, the world, or prakriti, was unmanifested. When it began to manifest, the ego comes in first, then the individuality, and then the mind. Then from the mind, you get into the gross elements. That is the natural evolution. In yogic meditation, we experience the involution, it could be called the creation and destruction. But actually, there is nothing created in you, nor is anything destroyed. As the Bhagavad Gita explains, the unmanifest appears as manifest and then returns to the unmanifest. What we see outside is the manifested, the in-between. That is what we call creation. 
That's why according to yoga, we don't say that God created anything. Yoga says God is just pure consciousness, and Prakriti is also there. Its nature began to evolve and then dissolve. Prakriti, in the unmanifested condition, has both matter and force, which are inseparable like fire and heat. Without fire, there is no heat, and without heat, there is no fire. When nature is in an unmanifested condition, the force is dormant or static. For example, when a dynamo, which is a machine for converting mechanical energy into electrical energy, which could be called a generator, doesn't revolve, no electricity is produced. But the moment the motor starts rotating, it produces electricity. This force, or prana, has three constituents called the gunas, sattva, rajas, and tamas, or tranquility, activity, and inertia. When all three qualities are in equilibrium, they do not affect the matter. But once there is a little disturbance in the gunas, it creates motion in the matter, which gives rise to all kinds of forms. That is how the entire universe appears. The sky, the earth, the fire, the air, and all the elements are created. So the one that is unmanifested slowly evolves itself, and ultimately we see the concrete forms. Now, we are in the concrete world with sattva, rajas, and tamas in full swing. We have to work from what we see now. From the known, we work back toward the unknown. We can't just ignore the known and directly tackle the unknown. It is easier to do something with concrete things which we can see, feel, touch, and taste. So that is why the mind is given a concrete object to contemplate first when it has been made tranquil by concentration. Once it understands that, then it goes a little deeper into the subtle elements, then the still subtler ones, until it reaches the original matter. Unless you understand the Prakriti very well, you can't get out of it. You can't just ignore it or set it aside. That's why the four stages of the lower samadhi are to be practiced first, one after the other. But there is danger in this lower samadhi as well. It is to be practiced, but we have to face the danger of it. That is why you have to prepare yourself with purity and selflessness. Otherwise, you will be in danger with your newfound powers. Take for example, Jesus, who was able to heal the sick and crippled people. He used this power to bring good to others, but he never used the same force to save himself when he was to be crucified. If he really wanted to, he could have done it, but he didn't. That means that these mysterious forces should not be used for selfish purposes, said forgiveness. Upon that train called wonder, I began to wonder just as the word says. There I went into deep contemplation where I found one-pointed awareness to be ever watchful of everything the voice in my head had said. This was a discovery, a venture into something new, a place I had always existed within, as this was mutable space called the mind where my reality grew. Due to the nature of the object in focus, the first stage I discovered was spiritual absorption, known as Sampragnata Samadhi. It was fourfold. First, Vitarka is reasoning, supposition, argument, discussion. But in this context, 
it refers to the concentration on physical objects. Next, vikara, or thinking, contemplation, but here it refers to the concentration on subtle objects. Third is ananda, or bliss, pleasure, happiness, but here it refers to the joy that is derived from deep within the senses, not from the pleasure that comes from the sense object with the contact of the I amness. This is self-identity, which is the last type of lower samadhi, which is spiritual absorption in which the yogi is aware of the object being meditated on, the process of meditation and himself or herself as a meditator. Yes, the mind needs an object for concentration, but within every object is a more subtle focus, and then another, and finally the subtlest of all. This is where I found focus. When I first sat in meditation, I looked down at a pebble, but something within asked me to look for a lotus. I could not find it. There I wandered aboard the train, looking for something else. There I found a peacock feather, and by some auspicious coincidence, I looked at the marking of the mystical eye, and there I saw how the seer was the self. Self-realization, as described in the previous sutra, is the ultimate goal of yoga. It is called Purusha Kayati. In the process of self-realization, the mind is the chief means as well as the greatest obstacle. A clear and one-pointed mind allows us to see what we are, but an impure and disturbed mind blocks and distorts our inner vision. In order to purify our mind and make it one-pointed, we first have to withdraw it from the external world and focus it on one object. But the mind has formed a habit of attending to one object after another. It does not know how to enjoy itself without leaning on some object. Regardless of how the spiritual absorption is induced, we need to continue practicing. Only then do we achieve maturity in that experience. All the objects known to the mind can be classified in four major categories. The first includes objects that are physical and can be experienced by the senses. That was this peacock feather. As I focused upon it, in the beginning, the mind wanders. Then, because of our resolve, it comes back to the image of the peacock feather. As we continue practicing, our power of concentration increases and the mind stays with the image of the peacock feather longer. Eventually, there comes a time when the mind stays with the feather for an extended time without interruption. During this period, the mind becomes clear like a crystal and steady. Thus, there arises an environment in which you can get a clear understanding of yourself. That is why this stage of one-pointedness is considered to be a state of samadhi or spiritual absorption. In a strict sense, however, this is not a perfect state of spiritual absorption because even though we as seekers are aware of the inner self, we are also aware of our concentration on the object, the peacock feather, the process of concentration, and ourselves as a concentrator. This stage of samadhi, sampragnata, can therefore be translated as lower samadhi because it is still a stepping stone to a pure and perfect spiritual absorption. It is in the vitarka samadhi, or spiritual absorption, followed by concentration on another object, because it will inevitably 
be followed by a disturbance caused by another object that will take the mind away from the image of the peacock feather. The second category of objects that can be known to the mind are those which take the form of thoughts. You can choose a mantra or prayer, for example, and use it as a focal point. And as I listened inward, a certain sound came to grow. Walking one foot after the other, I chanted, Omane Bedme Om. Four words within four steps, and I repeated the same mantra, one after the next. A walking meditation, and through practice, we will also gain clarity and stability of mind, enabling us to experience our self within, that is loving, forgiving, and kind. You could do this with a variety of prayers, as you could chant Hail Mary around rosary beads. By doing this, you begin to calm your mind, to make a connection with what the soul actually needs. But this is also a lower form of samadhi, because the mind will eventually be pulled away from its focal point, which is the mantra or prayer in this case. You remain aware of the mantra or prayer, the process of meditating on it, and yourself as a meditator. You begin your meditation by focusing on a particular type of thought, which is vakara, and toward the end of your meditation, you are involuntarily pulled by another thought. The spiritual absorption induced by this meditation is called Vikara Samadhi. The third category of objects is contained within our senses in the form of joy, bliss, which is called Ananda. The body is a repository of pleasant and unpleasant experiences. The existence of different colors and aromas is totally dependent on the capacity of the senses that perceive them. For those who are colorblind, certain colors don't exist. For maggots and vultures, there is no foul smell, not even cat pee. Through practice, you can train your senses to exhibit their inherent properties and your disciplined mind can gain access to that reservoir of sense pleasure that lies within you. That pleasure does not depend on external stimulus. The mind runs from one object to another in search of happiness. Once it finds that pleasure within, it loses its interest in chasing the objects and becomes steady. But the state of spiritual absorption induced by the meditation on this form of joy will follow the same pattern as the previous two categories. It starts with meditation on joy or bliss, which is called ananda, and is involuntarily disrupted later by the desire or idea for other forms of joy. This state is called ananda samadhi. This comes with time, but when it arrives, it comes with an onset of pleasantness rooted within the mind. We find no preference here, for all of it is bliss. It didn't matter if anything went wrong, because we realize that in this moment we are all truly blessed. For example, I could remember something had gone wrong, and so I washed the blanket where the cat had taken a piss. Was it forgiveness or kismet? Well, they didn't speak up because it barely mattered what they said. Oh, it could have been dread, but I was able to remain disinterested in an outcome, and so there was little fluctuation within my head. The mind was now mild, and after a while, I crawled up into a luggage bin where the train's cargo was housed overhead. I slept with a smile, but after a while, the train hit a bump. It woke me up and shot me out of the cargo bin where the luggage and I were dumped out. 
We crashed down below, but it was still a gift of grace. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Thank you for creating this amazing space. Oh, how beautiful it is to wonder. How beautiful is our soul. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. You are the spiritual goal. May my sight be focused upon you. May my eyes gaze at your lotus feet. Oh, Mani Padme Home. I began to walk through the train, thinking the mantra on repeat. To put this in perspective, I wouldn't quite call this state a trance, but rather I beamed with joy and I was so elevated that I would sing, chant, and dance. Then the fourth category of objects known to the mind is our pure sense of I amness. In the process of reaching spiritual absorption of this kind, you first withdraw yourself from all worldly affairs and become aware of yourself as the space occupied by your body. You focus your mind on the sense of I amness that pervades your entire body. Through constant practice, as your meditation becomes refined, you will automatically lose your awareness of your body and become aware of your breath. You will begin to feel that you are a breathing being. Eventually, you will transcend this state of awareness and begin to feel that you are a thinking being. At some point, you will transcend that state too. Only a sense of self-existence will occupy the realm of your consciousness. When you use the sense of I amness that identifies itself with self-existence as its focal point, then the spiritual absorption emerging is called Asmata Samadhi. But even here, the spiritual absorption can be involuntarily disrupted by the sense of I amness pertaining to other objects such as body or senses. Regardless of how the spiritual absorption is induced, we need to continue practicing. Only then do we achieve maturity in that experience. It is the maturity of the experience that enables us to stay in that state a longer period of time. It is also the maturity of the experience that enables us to get into and get out of that state voluntarily. This ability is what opens the door to the highest form of samadhi described in the next sutra. The next sutra brings us to the higher samadhi, and at that time, it felt like I was floating, being lifted out of my body. I was becoming one with all of it, and all of it is what we embodied. We are one, and one is joy, and joy is pain, and pain is real, and real are you, and you are me, and that is all there is to be. We are time, and time is wise, and wise is beauty, and beauty is love, and love is you, and you are me, and that is all there is to be. A hand in hand, a rainy day, a grain of sand, a child at play, dogs and moon and milk and sun, worldly all, there's only one. We are God, and God is truth, and truth is light, and light is life, and life is you, and you are me, and that is all there is to be.